Hi there, my name is Paddy Butler and this podcast is brought to you from Liberia, a bookshop by Second Home. My guest today has written an extraordinary book which looks at how the objects we create, large or small, will project who we are to future generations into, as he terms it, deep time. How will Shanghai's city look in a thousand years? What will plastic objects become? Covering anthropology, literature, art, history, and our propensity to use science to dominate space and place, David's book is packed with uniquely argued, illuminating ideas. Other works which move in similar terrain are, of course, Underland by the prolific Robert McFarlane and Gaia Vince's Adventures in the Anthropocene, but also worth looking at are two classics, Patagonia by Bruce Chatwin and Danube by Claudio McGriss. But now over to David Farrier and his book Footprints in Search of Future Fossil. David Farrier, brilliant to have you on the Liberia podcast and congratulations on your book. It's absolutely Thank you. beautiful writing and an incredibly different book in a, in a lot of ways. And I guess, you know, future fossils this idea where did it come from and where did the idea you know how did the book come about you know what was the art where were where were the origins of this yes. <laughs> it came about because of um a question or a pair of questions that i was asking myself a lot um as i began to hear more learn more about the kind of climate crisis we're in and, and the urgency of that was was beginning to really mm. take hold in many people's imaginations um and I kept asking myself, you know, what's going, what you know, what will be lost, but what will be left mm. of you know in this great storm of change that we're living through? Um, and it seemed to present you know such a profound challenge to the imagination. You mm. know, how do we really comprehend the scale of of what's happening to the Earth system, to life on Earth, and uh, and and everything that surrounds that? Um, a deep time represents a similar kind of challenge to the imagination, mm. and and the, it was the convergence of that sense of we 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 need to stretch our sense of what we can imagine mm. um, in order to engage with both of these issues, combined with the sense that you know climate change has a, you know a very urgent dimension to it. Yeah. Uh, the extinction crisis is a very urgent one, but there is a. a profoundly deep time dimension as well. These are changes that will endure for hundreds and hundreds of human generations. Mm. The last, uh, so there have been five main mass extinction events in Earth's history. Each one took something in the region of 10 million years for biodiversity to be restored to a comparable level. So Mm. we're talking about orders of time that wholly exceed anything that we can engage with in um, in our daily lives. Yes. Uh, and yet we live surrounded by deep time. We live in its flow. We, we're surrounded by materials that, you know, if we choose to see them in, in this capacity, allow us to kind of reach back into the deep past and reach forward into the, the deep future. So it was, I suppose I was provoked to think about how can deep time help us to engage with this question of what will what are we losing and, mm. and what are we leaving behind? What is going to be our legacy for the you know the, the generations that follow us and how might we learn through that to be better ancestors and when you say deep time we're talking about this we're, we're going back to the what's known as the Pliocene period and the Pleistocene period mm. I mean that's you know that's archaeological deep time isn't it really and it 
as well as that, you know, you're future facing, you're looking at how the objects we're creating in our time yeah. will be fossilized and will be preserved, unfortunately preserved in the case of plastic and other detritus and other kind of man-made um, artifacts, shall we say. Um, but you're also housing this in, you know, in looking at art and literature and how that helps us to realize that or how that helps us to imagine these sort of scenarios. Can you describe that a little bit more? Or why is that? Because you are a teacher in literature and, you know, the, the, the text mm. is beautifully peppered with references to mm. all sorts of literature, which we'll probably go into mm. Ursula Le Guin, Roland Barthes, etc., etc. Italo Calvino as well, who's obviously Invisible Cities, which we'll mm. hopefully we'll talk about a little bit. Yeah, how does how does that play into it? Is that is that a human thing that we need to imagine what we are facing? Is that the is is that the purpose of it? Yeah, and I think that's the value of, of storytelling is that stories allow us to step outside of the here and now. And you know, you, you that goes right back to the origins of of the very earliest stories. Um, I was really struck. Um, as I'm sure many people were a couple of months ago by the announcement of the discovery of, of what's thought to be the oldest extant story on the planet, um, a cave painting in in Sulawesi in Indonesia that that, mm -hmm. that depicts a hunting scene and the hunters are a, a kind of curious hybrid of human forms with, with animal heads mm -hmm. and other kind of animal, like tails and features like that. So it's clearly an imagined scene. Mm -hmm. um, it's It's perhaps the earliest myth but it's not been observed directly from real life. And so this, it's evidence of how at the very beginnings of our culture, um, we were using stories as a tool, as a technology to take us to other times and other places beyond the here and now. And that's what I think art can do. It can engage us with, you know, the the distortions, the the um, the imaginative challenges of, of the Anthropocene, as it's sometimes called, and, and help us to to actually put ourselves into that, mm -hmm. um, that really difficult kind of mental space. Yes. Yeah. And um, oh, well, that, that, that leads us on beautifully, I guess, to Ursula Le Guin, the, 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 the famous science fiction writer. Mm. And I, I, I hadn't heard of this before, but her theory of fiction, um, yes. which you refer to in the book, encapsulates that idea, mm. doesn't it? Yeah, the carrier bag theory of fiction. So yeah. she draws on the suggestion of an archaeologist called Elizabeth, Elizabeth Fisher, mm. who proposed that the first technology, the first tool wasn't the kind of the, the stone axe that we, we have um, examples of. It would have been a receptacle, a vessel mm. to, to carry things. Um, and, and the suggestion is that, you know, this would have broken open the world for our earliest ancestors, you know, that, that they could carry the forest with them, they could mm -hmm. carry the river with them, their relationship with space and time would have changed. And, and Le Guin takes this up and she says, well, you know, the stories as vessels work in a similar manner, they bring energy home, mm -hmm. which is a fascinating mm -hmm. idea, particularly when you think about um, the fact that we are such an energy hungry society and so much of the, the difficulty we find ourselves in comes from that. Yes. What stories do is they bring energy back. They, they bring energy back to reinforce a sense of connection with place, you know, between individuals, communities. Um, 
And yeah, it's, it's a fascinating idea, I think. And when you then take that idea and, and, and apply it to the kind of receptacle that mm-hmm. we very much take for granted, um, perhaps less so now that we're all being encouraged to use less single-use mm-hmm. plastic, mm-hmm. but we live in a world surrounded by vessels that we have been encouraged for decades to see only really in the moment of use. Yes. You know, that, that we, we have, I think we still find it very difficult to allow the... The, the deep history of a, of, a, of a plastic vessel, a plastic bottle, mm-hmm. to have any purchase on our imagination or a sense of where the story goes from there. Yes. And so I found, you know, Ursula Le Guin's suggestion that, you know, we think about, you know, the story is one of our earliest vessels for making meaning and understanding yes. the world, um, our, one of our earliest technologies. Um, really helpful in thinking, well, how do we need to re- envisage plastic yes. you know, and, and an entity that we tend to see through not to look at well yeah you talk about that and you describe that beautifully and it's something that I guess I hadn't really thought about until I had read your book is that uh, plastic become has become invisible almost we just don't actually realize that it's it's everywhere. <laughs> yeah, it, it is. And, and I ask my students this question sometimes when we, we have this conversation, you know, think back, how many interactions, actions you've been part of today up to this point? Yeah. How many of them were facilitated by plastic or by fossil fuels? Yeah. Um, and it's very difficult to actually think of what you could have done or done in the same way without without it. Yeah. Um there's a, a passage in the book where I um, I reflect on this myself, um, and you know I was sitting down to write, and it was about just after nine o'clock in the morning, mm. and I thought, how would I answer that question? And I just made a list, and it, it you know it it ran into the dozens. Um, it was I was pretty confident that if I continued throughout the whole day, I'd have a list of thousands of actions, all of which involve plastic, and all of which. In all of which, I should say, plastic was a uh, um, very intangible presence. You know, I, I, I wasn't mm. noticing it. Mm. In fact, what I was doing, though, you know, when I was brushing my daughter's hair with a plastic comb or flicking a, a light switch or plugging in a phone, was engaging with a material that reaches back into the deep past because mm. of its, you know, its origins. Yeah. Um, in, in oil and reaches forward into the deep future because of the you know, really quite impressive durability of, of these materials. Plastic is, it, you know, most plastics don't biodegrade, they yeah. photodegrade, which means they break down into smaller and smaller pieces. But, you know, their they're essential um, kind of molecular character doesn't yeah. change. Um, and, you know, the, the quantity of this material that's in the oceans, for example, something in the region of, I think, five trillion pieces, it's been estimated, Gosh. individual pieces, all of which are breaking down and getting smaller mm-hmm. and smaller, eventually will settle, much of it at least, will settle down back onto the ocean floor and some of it may begin a kind of, tra- a kind of transformation back into the material that it originated mm. from. So there's a, an immense deep time story that is told by any piece of plastic. Yeah. don't see it's it it is it's it's astonishing that story and as you say that is a perfect encapsulates perfectly deep time in that sense or you know deep material time as well 
The the other thing, just to go back to that, Ursula Gwynn's um, theory is quite interesting as well in the sense that these, you know, when we take that leap of imagination and we create mm. these vessels, uh, it allows us to to buy time, essentially, doesn't it? It, it allows us to break time and space. Mm. And it's, it, as you say in the book, it, it, it allows us to, these become vessels of information because it's stories, isn't it? This mm. is, allows us time to tell stories. Yeah. It's, it's absolutely incredible. It's a beautiful uh, overall metaphor from Le Guin, isn't it? Mm, like it's, absolutely. And do you think, yeah. do you think it's, it still stands her theory? Do you think it's it, it it's reliable? I think it it tells it. Who knows? I mean, yeah. whatever vessel may have been the first one, and, and whenever it was created, it would not have survived. Mm. It would have been made of organic material, sure. perishable. It tells a larger truth, I okay. think, which is about um, how we make meaning, okay, and yeah. and the role that stories play in that, um, and that's why I think. You know, coming to a, a, a question like like the one I've asked in Footprints, you know, what will our future fossils be, mm. um, involves thinking with stories because really what you're saying is, is what stories are we leaving behind? What, what stories are we telling about ourselves yeah. now in constructing our cities from the materials that we do that are drawn from all over mm. the world and will, you know, in many cases will leave an imprint on 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 the strata, yeah. in, in some instances at least, filling them with materials that... Um, you know, until the very recent past didn't really exist yeah. um, on the planet. We're, we're telling stories about about what we've valued, about how we've lived. Um, in some cases, I expect, you know, potentially quite intimate stories. If, if you imagine that, you know, in, in, you know, 10 million years time, um, a city like Shanghai yeah. um, may leave, you know, a uh, I got a meter thick layer in the, in the strata compressed down. But within that, you'll find perhaps in some cases really quite precise outlines of very everyday yes. objects, yeah. Yeah. watches, yeah. you know, um, nail clippers, things. Like, and and, and they, they speak of, of, of the intimate moments, not just the kind of the planetary one. Well, it's interesting because you travel to Shanghai for the purpose of, of you know, seeing uh, Pudong and that, mm -hmm. that center yeah. um, monumental growth, which was, yes. I, I think you say begun in the eighties really, which is kind of the, 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 the Shanghai tower is built and, and, and something crazy in your book. I think you said it, it weighs 800,000 800, tons. Something, something like that. Yes. <sighs> built in ground that really isn't meant to support buildings at that size. That's so, right. It was kind of a swamp sort of. Very boggy, very soft. Yeah. And so the engineering, as you say in the book, I mean, this is astronomical. It's, it's, mm, it's mm. crazy. It, yeah. Why would you, why would you even take it on almost, no? Because well, it, cause it's, yeah. it's actually, it actually, I think you said it, it's sunk two it's meters. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it has been, Shanghai has been sinking um, a lot. I mean, they, they started to notice this and measure it in the 1920s, mm. I think, and it's sunken somewhere in the region of two and a half meters, I think, since then, partly extraction from groundwater, partly the weight, and coupled with sea rise. I mean, you know, Pudong, um, you know, the larger Pudong, if you like, mm. you know, going right out to the coast, a lot of it is is reclaimed land okay. and the seas are rising. Um, so th there is a, you know, a real threat to cities like this. Mm. Um, 
And, you know, but also a strong, strong possibility that something of their impression will be left, be, okay. you know, will be preserved because, um, you know, when seas come in, they bring, you know, marine sediments, you know, that, and um, particularly the, the roots of these tallest buildings, they go down, you know, 90 meters, something like that. Yeah. There are thousands of kilometers of metro lines right. running okay. through Shanghai. Um, um, many of these buildings uh, and metro lines all have kind of subterranean layers, shopping malls and so on, yeah. filled with materials. And there's a strong possibility that much of this will be preserved in okay. some form, you know, bearing witness to, as you say, that, you know, the ingenuity that led mm. to the, the building of these cities. You know, how was it possible to create, you know, to create a building on the scale that would have needed foundations as, as deep as this, if yeah. you like, you know, it will, yeah. it will bear witness to the, 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 the heights, even if, if the buildings themselves don't exist anymore, if they've been, been uh, lost, but also to other kinds of stories. I mean, that, that there will be stories of ingenuity told by our future fossils, mm -hmm. but massive stories of inequality as well. Yes, um, of course. Yeah. You know, the, the, the kind that, you know, the, the, the world that we've made in which some people are much more vulnerable to climate change, much more vulnerable to, um, the world that's to come. And, is, is that, just to clarify for listeners, is that re regards to a lot of people who will be left behind on these coastal regions in relate, now talking about big, in part, bigger cities? In part, yes. I mean, the, these bigger cities will create, um, I expect, you know, if they don't respond appropriately to mm -hmm. the challenges of sea level rise, you know, even more market inequality than we see now, perhaps um, pressures for resources, pressure to um, to build on on land that is is more secure. But you know, in themselves, they also tell stories of inequality. You know, the the, the resources out of which the cities have been built have come from somewhere. Yeah. For every tall building, there's a hole in the ground somewhere. You know, right, yeah. and it would be possible, I'm sure, to put together you know a, a vast open cast mine in Western Australia and a mega city like Shanghai. And even if it's not a direct correlation to see, well, something was going on here, some kind of mm. relationship with the, nat with, the, with the the natural world was playing out, you know, in which it was seen primarily as a resource. And, you know, these, these cities needed to be built by yeah. people um, and, and, you know, they speak of a kind of hoarding of resources as well. Right. You know, uh, there's, yeah. a, there's a story of inequality just in the bare fact of their existence, I think. Yeah. Yeah. Um, not just in, in uh, the, the cities that may come. Okay. Yeah. Now, staying on cities and the internet, I mean, you talk about the, the, there's a beautiful comparison, uh, beautiful or devastating, depending on your point of view, but you talk about Alexandria, the, the famous library mm. ancient greece which purportedly was was burnt down mm. and you know the the whole idea of the library and an archive and then you know fast forward to our time and the internet and you talk about that as an archive as well and, and a library and the abject irony if you like the horrendous irony that the <laughs> to store the data for for, mm. for the internet you're i mean I was astonished at the figures, but that I knew there was a lot of data centers. I mean, because of the data that runs yeah. through the internet, but 
I think your your figures. I can't eight point four million. I I, I just like cannot. That is just incredible. Mm. Now I, I I interviewed actually James Bridle, and he's very good on this as well in regards to data centers and climate change. But I mean, it is quite it is quite interesting how you illustrate that. You know this this archive, this library, and its contribution to heat warming and the mm. effect of you know, it, it's kind of ironic that Tokyo, uh, London, um, New York, New York mm. are these centers, internet centers, yeah. hubs. And it's also like that is contributing so much to the, the rising, you know, contention, yeah. the, the disaster. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, uh, our carbon emissions associated with internet use data centers and so on, it, it's something like two, two or three percent annual emissions, mm. as I understand it. Um, Supposedly, more and more uh, of these data centers are looking to become more sustainable, but mm. still, it, it's it's a huge issue. And very ironically, you know that many of the the, the main hubs for um, for the internet are in cities threatened by sea level rise, so are kind of contributing to their own existential crisis in a sense. But I was really struck by the the um, contrast between this particular kind of archive that we have. Um, developed only in mm. in in the in the past couple of years, yeah, really. Yeah. Um, that is this indiscriminate sort of um, record of all different kinds of interactions. Mm. Um, you know, from selfies to emails, what have you, and and the parallel between that and and the ice cores that yes. store a record of of planetary history going back thousands and thousands, tens. Um, of thousands of years, you know, and each layer in the ice recording a um, a new round of information about about what the climate was like, what the, what the weather was like, you know, what was in some cases what um, um, was happening in in human society. So records yeah. of human development that can be read in um, in ice cores from uh, lead smelting in the Roman Empire, yeah, uh, and and so on. So the, these two archives that are in a both senses kind of a, a kind of indiscriminate archive they're just gathering information all the time and, and compressing it into 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 these um repositories mm. are in a sense counterpointed because um you know the, the 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 appetites of the one are driving the erosion of the other yes. and you mentioned the, the the library of alexandria and you know where the story goes that it it, it burned Burnt. and all yeah. the um the information was lost in fact scholars tend to think now it simply was lost to neglect um scribes weren't around to right. copy the material and yeah. it just fell into disuse and and eroded away melted away if you like that way and there's again a really striking irony when you think about the way in which this planetary archive in the ice is also just being allowed to Great to chat with David on his remarkable book. Do grab a copy, which is of course available at Libraria. Thanks for listening. And if you enjoyed the show, please do rate us with a high five on iTunes. It really helps a great deal. See you next time.